If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm really excited to have our guest on, who's uh, Dr. David Rabin, who's the founder and co-inventor at Apollo Neurosciences. And I'm actually wearing the device and I appreciate you guys. I see that. I appreciate you guys uh, uh, sending me uh, this version. Uh, so David, thank you for being on and I really appreciate it. Uh, before we get into the device and all that stuff, I want to really learn a little bit more about you. I've been, I've been you know, doing some research uh, and getting into your content a little bit, and which is fantastic and you have some amazing content, but I don't know if anybody's uh, been asking you about your, your own personal history. So I'm curious about that. So first, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Mill Valley, California. We, tra- we traveled around a bit as a family, but mostly in Mill Valley, California, which is just north of, of San Francisco. It's interesting. So my family name on my mother's side is Raven. And uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm wondering, and they came from, uh, I guess, parts of the Soviet Union, like Ukraine and all, all these other places immigrated over. So if there was a DNA test, maybe we can check if we're related some way. Yeah, right. You never know. <laughs> um, and so what was your childhood like? Are you, uh, do you have uh, siblings? Were your parents together? Uh, yeah, I have uh, my two younger brothers. I'm the oldest of three. Um, one of my, my, my middle brother is uh, two and a half years younger than me. My youngest brother is seven years younger than me. And my, uh, our, our parents, you know, we were raised by two very loving 
parents uh, in Mill Valley. My mom is a neurologist uh, who specializes in movement disorders. My dad is an ophthalmologist who is also originally trained as an engineer. And so there was always this this kind, and they, and they were two two amongst the first people of their families to go to college and to actually pursue higher education and graduate level education. And so I think, you know, for them coming from the first generation of Jews born in America after the Holocaust, there was this huge drive to succeed um, and uh, in a way that benefits society and in a way that is charitable, but that also integrates this really healthy sense of discovery and passion and joy for what we do. And um, and and just you know, as hard as we may work, still trying doing what we can to preserve that sense of of joy, and so um, and just and, and especially around discovery. And so, and both my parents had also done research in the past in, at different times of their lives. And so, you know, I was I was definitely a why child um, growing up, asking why a lot, um, and you know, always trying to figure out how things worked. It's funny. We maybe we are related. Maybe it's genetic because I was the why guy in my family too. My dad was an engineer. My mom was more on the accounting side. But uh, I, I find it fascinating. I wasn't born in this country. I immigrated when I was six years old from uh, Lithuania, from the old uh, Soviet Union too. And like I said, my my family came from Poland, Ukraine, uh, Lithuania, Belarus, and that, that area. But I, I agree with you. There is a certain sense of discovery and contribution. It's like they wanted to pursue better things and also share those things. So when you were growing up with uh, with that, was that a uh, motivator for you? Like I'm trying to figure out your your path and your journey to get like, all right, so I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a psychiatrist or maybe I'll be both. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. I can walk you through the story. So right. it, that was a that was a core part of it, right? That that environment that my parents uh, kindly laid out for for us um, that embodied these values that we were just talking about, especially around discovery and 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 charity and giving back, and you know, in, in uh, Jewish culture, we call it like a mitzvah, right? right? So this is the the it's one of the things that's the most the best things that we can do in our lives is to give back to other people, and so that really stuck with me. It laid a really nice foundation. I spent a couple of years in Hebrew school growing up. I think that also you know actually left a really uh, nice layer of foundation on that culturally and helped me connect with my own culture better. Uh, and then, you know, that combined, that that environment combined with growing up having very vivid dreams as a very young child, as long as I can remember back to maybe, I think my earliest memories are from very few, from but from two years old. So it was probably around like four or five that I started to have these very vivid dreams that were not always bad or good. Sometimes they were just neutral, but they were things that I would then reference later in conversation with people. And I would realize very quickly when they gave me like a quizzical look, you know, suggesting that they did not remember the events that I was alluding to, that this was something that actually might've happened in a dream, not in this reality. So I started asking people and my parents were the smartest people that I knew. And I was a little kid and, you know, who else would you go to? So you ask your parents and, you know, and, and so my parents said, you know, well, dreams aren't real. You know, they're these things that happen when we sleep and, and, you know, they're not real. They can't hurt you, et cetera, et cetera. But that wasn't, that wasn't, that was it. That was the explanation for the most part that I remember. And that never really sat with me well and never really left me satisfied because 
ultimately I continued to have these dreams and these dreams continue to feel extraordinarily real. They continue to feel as real as this conversation we're having right now. And so as a little kid, you start to wonder, well, what is real, right? What is, what is that con that word that we use to describe real actually mean if I feel it in these two different situations and one the experts around me say, even as a young kid, right, you can kind of ask, start to ask these questions. Like the experts around me are saying this isn't real. Subconsciously, there's a part of us that's like, okay, well, then what is real? Right. Right. And that kind of kicked, that was the spark, I think, that really kicked off in me this drive to try to understand what is real and what is consciousness and how do we think about the world and make meaning of the world and how does the way we use words influence that and how does the way that we interact with each other influence that and how does that tie back to the neurobiology and the neurochemistry and the drugs and all of it. So it's really interesting because I've, I've, uh, I can't say vivid dreams that I remember all the time. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but there's been situations in my life where I was having conversations with people. And sometimes I feel like I am watching myself have a conversation with somebody and I'm in, in a different sort of, and, and by the way, uh, through, you know, taking psychedelics and all these other things, I started getting a better perception that this is everything that we just see is not everything that we see that really exists. So it made sense. But as a kid, as you're getting through that was, was a desire to sort of, let me, let me dig into this brain and see what's going on in the brain. Or is it, uh, because there's, there's all these things that I can see the, the dreams, but let me, take it apart and see, is there a part that's happening? Was that the, the motivator to kind of pursue that? Yeah, I, I think there was always a how it works kind of background because that was just how I was raised. So yes. But I think for a long time as a, as a kid, I didn't really know what the brain was, right? I think I don't, I don't, I don't recall actually having a concept of brain as in this organ inside our heads with all these neurons that talk to each other and learn things and convey and information and hold our sense of self and blah, blah, blah. Right. I, I didn't have any understanding of any of that or what that meant until maybe eight or 10 years old. Um, so I think it, at first it was really just, um, uh, an interest in experience, right. And understanding like what is lived experience as a child. And, and I was very fortunate to have a an environment that was safe for the most part, you know, short of a little bit of bullying, but safe to experience that in. And, you know, I think that that, that really helped to help me understand, you know, a framework for, you know, how do you under, how, how, how do you go from here? And then when, when I got old enough to start to understand the brain and what the brain was, I could start to put the pieces together. And then, right. but I think even throughout, you know, I, I, I've been in a lot of school, you know, I've been in more school yeah. than most people ever go to. Um, and, you know, because I, the co college and then medical school and graduate school and residency, and that's, and, and, and I don't think it was even until the end of medical school or mid graduate school, probably six years after college that I read Eric Kandel's book, which was in search of memory, his autobiography about how he, uh, his experiences with trauma and the Holocaust, and then leading to yeah. him ultimately winning the Nobel prize for discovering how we learn and remember. And that that actually goes all the way down into the center of the cell, uh, and how the cell works. And it was encoded over a long period of time. And it extends back a as a mechanism of memory, 300 million years to ancient sea snails. 
And I never learned about that in that way in medical school or college or any or graduate school to the point where I could, I could, you know, grok it like that. And then I read that book and I was like, wow, this is it. It just, it just integrated all those pieces together. And I was like, okay, this is how memory works, right? I have this understanding. And then that led me on this much deeper mission of trying to figure out how, how the brain works with the body and how we can optimize that relationship between the mind and the body to get our stuff done, to sleep better, to focus better, um, and to improve our quality of life. I, I love that story. Let, let, let me let me take a step back, and I want to understand because your focus was or is on chronic stress as part of the what you're. So growing up, and you mentioned bullying, for instance, uh, was there a level of stress that you felt that you were going through? And I'm trying to get the core. Yes, everybody has stress, and I, I'm a big believer that stress uh, creates an inflammation and cortisol, and uh, you know it triggers all these disease predispositions. Um, that's what I. Everything I've ever read and everything I've experienced, and my mom always told me, stress is your number one thing. But I, you know, I'm the why guy. I'm like, oh, yes, but how? Why? Why is it? So digging a little bit deeper was interesting to me. But did you have your own personal experience with stress that sort of kind of led you down that path as well? Oh yeah, many. <laughs> um, I think the, you know, I think the first the first one was just from a young age in growing up in you know, in our community, you know, in the way that schools were when we were growing up, which isn't that different from the way they are now, except they're much more cyber now than they were then. Um, but kids, kids picked on each other and bullied each other. And, you know, it was mostly in just good fun, but you don't really recognize that when you're a little kid. And so as a kid feeling excluded and feeling like you're, you're not part of the group or you, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you're not, you're lesser than the other kids, I think is a huge stressor for all kids out there for anyone really you know we all need to feel accepted by our community but but for kids in our de- emotional prime our emotional development years especially during you know uh, elementary adolescence these times and and younger all school ages really you know this is a critical time where, where kids need to feel safe we need to feel safe emotionally physically and mentally spiritually etc to explore what it is that we actually as children want to do with our lives when we grow up right otherwise if we have the stress of bullying or stress of being picked on or all of these pressure with what college we get into and what other people are going to think of us when we graduate and will we ever be able to get the exact job that we want, then we actually are clouding the child, the child's ability, our own, our own ability even was, was clouded to figure out what is it exactly that I want to do with my life and spend most of my time doing that makes me happy and fulfilled, right? And gives me a lifestyle that I'm comfortable with, right? And if we could help create a nourishing environment to sort of nudge people along that path, it becomes a lot easier, but that was not the case for most of us. It definitely wasn't the case right. for me. So that was a huge stressor. And, um, and I think over time you, you increase they, you know, that stressor goes up and down with the pressure consistently going up to perform in school. And, you know, it, it winds up being quite the pressure cooker. So, so what are the, I guess, common cause you, you mentioned uh, one, uh, you know, bullying and, and having these expectations. Now, I've read so many different things about, you know, letting go and meditation. Like when you actually want something and you and you you focus on that, you're telling yourself, you actually create stress and you're, you're blocking, as you were saying, the ability for you to think more clearly by actually focusing on those things, letting go. But what, what, are, what are some of the common causes of, of stress? 
Well, I can break it down in a really reductionist sense, if you'd like. Yeah. It's basically overstimulation, right? So we, we are a sense organ. Our bodies, our minds, the entire thing that is, is you and me, we are all sense organs. We sense everything coming in, sound, light, taste, smells, uh, vibration, touch, and other things, right? Cold, temperature, hot, cold. We're sensing all these things all the time, spatial awareness, right? So when you think about these things all happening around us all the time, then you pile on tons of responsibilities like emails and, and work and uh, kids and family responsibilities and, um, the, you know, you name it, right? The news, right? You just think about all of that getting piled onto all of the other stuff and it, and it, and without taking the time intentionally where we prioritize recovery as, as equally to prioritizing the time that we spend performing all the time and outputting we don't if we don't prioritize the time where we take back in recharge our batteries we will burn out there's absolutely with no question about it it's just a matter of when it's not an if right you have to restore the batteries we have to prioritize the replenishing things that we do for ourselves as well as the performance things and the way this ties back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how how did we get here right um is how did i how did i get here is really um, about, you know, me going to my dad one day, I think I was in 10th grade, we were in on a family vacation in, in Mexico or something around the beach. And he says, you know, son, you're in 10th grade, it's time to start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And I was like, Dad, I want to study consciousness. I want to study dreams. I want to I want to figure out how the brain works and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, son, I know that sounds fascinating. And I know that you, this is coming from an ophthalmologist. He's right. like, I know, I know this sounds fascinating. And, and he also is fascinated by the brain and he, and he, and he was very encouraging of this, this line of thinking, but he's like, you, it's going to be hard getting a job doing that. That's a tough, that's a tough, tough research field. So maybe you should spend some time, you know, if you're really interested in doing this, spend some time in the lab, spend some time working with doctors and who are in the space and see if that's something that you actually want to do. So I, I did that. And I spent a bunch of time in the lab, um, and he's and he also encouraged me to pursue medicine because having shadowed doctors in the past and having spent some time with my parents, you know, it, it is an you know being able to work with vulnerable people and help them heal is one of the most rewarding things that we can ever do as human beings, and it's and and we all can do it in our own way, uh, and but being able to do it from the standpoint of being a medical doctor is a true privilege, and and it is something that. Uh, is very, very important and rewarding at the same time. And so seeing the reward that my parents got from that and the gratification from doing that and the fact they were able to earn a reliable living doing it, right, in terms of practicality, I made the decision and after shadowing, I made the decision that um, I wanted to go to medical school, but also just kind of do research on the side because doctors can do research and there's actually nothing stopping us from doing research. Um, It used to be part and parcel of becoming a doctor was that research was something we all did. Now that's not the case anymore because everything is moving towards patient, you know, efficient patient care. But as a clinician, I was working on um, chronic stress and I have been working on chronic stress in the lab with Sally Temple, who was one of the leaders in the space who dis- who was, and one of the people who discovered that there are dividing neurons that still exist in the adult, uh, the adult brain, um, which is not known before. And uh, hence the, the term, you can't teach an old, an old dog new tricks. That is not true. 
Um, and we now know in part because of her work. And so uh, I worked with her on neural stem cells um, and aging in and neurogeneration and chronic stress on the cellular level with uh, looking at disorders of dementia and aging blindness in humans. And then from there realized that um, my, that I, you know, that I had a really good psychiatry rotation. One of my good friends um, was very much into psychiatry and she just kept telling me, Dave, you, you know, you make a really good psychiatrist. And I really enjoyed my time doing psychiatry. And so I um, just started to spend more time doing it. And I eval- and then she sent me a bunch of papers on the psychedelic medicine research that was going on in psychiatry. And I read those papers and they were some of the, they were just some outstanding science. Like it was just really high quality science. And the results were unequivocally good showing that psychedelic medicine delivered properly was inducing radical shifts in consciousness for people and radical shifts in meaning and radical shifts in sense of self and therefore symptoms. And seeing that pattern, even in 2012, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the opportunity to actually study what I've always wanted to study and be able to practice medicine in the way I've always wanted to practice all at once. I'm making the decision. I'm I'm going to move from neurology, ophthalmology to psychiatry. Um, and then that became that became the journey that led to Apollo and all the psychedelic research and practice we're doing. Yeah, I, I definitely want to dive into that. Uh, just a comment, because I had a similar thing with my parents. I wanted to be Rick Rubin. I wanted to be a music producer. And my parents actually had an intervention. They called their psychiatrist friend and they all got together and told me that I will never make any money doing. I don't even know what Rick Rubin did at that time. I just thought it was cool to be a producer. I don't know what it meant uh, to go to college for physical therapy. So they all had an intervention. So I went to physical therapy school instead and never worked a day in my life as a physical therapist. <laughs> but I learned a lot about anatomy and physiology and all that stuff where I can use uh, today. But I find so. So why psychiatry and not psychology? Because it, it there's a pharmacology aspect to that. And then there is a therapeutic aspect to the other one. Why? Because you were already in medical school and you thought that this was a, you know, a path that led to more of a intervention and prevention than, than, you know, psychotherapy. So, well, I, so I actually do psychotherapy. Um, psychotherapy is the majority of my practice. I'm trained, I'm trained in and practice in about 10 to 12 different forms of psychotherapy. So yeah. it's really more about, um, sort of the tiers of training in that if you, if you're already in medical school and you've gone through the rigor of the American medical student training system to become a medical doctor, then if you want to study mental health, the path would be to pursue psychiatry, um, not to go back and and do like a six year psychology degree. Um, so psychiatry would be the path, but also as a psychiatrist, part of why I went to medical school was to keep my options open in terms of being able to work with people conversationally, psychotherapeutically, and also with medication, right? Because the two combined work better than in each individual individually alone. So having the ability to use both to study both optimizes the chances of getting better results, which indeed it does. And, um, and so that, so being a psychiatrist got me psychotherapy training. I'm not as, as, you know, I don't have as many years under my belt as many psychologists do, but I understand and have practiced psychotherapy for many years and can deliver it very effectively to the point where, you know, it's over 50% of my practice are not actually needing medication prescription on a regular basis because psychotherapy mm-hmm. works, um, even without it. drugs. Yeah. It, it, uh, thank you for explaining that. It makes total sense. 
I want to dive into a little bit on heart rate variability and just understanding how does heart rate variability, how does it affect health span? Uh, like, because people throw around these words all the time and we, I have a bunch of biometric devices and I, HRV and my HRV, but nobody, it's very it's very difficult to find somebody that really understands, all right, this is baseline. This is what where I should be. And how does it really affect? Why am I measuring this in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. So HRV to start stands for heart rate variability, which is the rate of change of our heartbeat over time. So what that means is that if our heartbeat is 60 beats per minute, which is what we often think of as a standard heartbeat, for the average person, that that mean that is not mean that there's the same one second between each beat. What it means is that sometimes there's 90 second, 90 mil, 900 milliseconds between beat one and beat two, and maybe there's 1050 milliseconds between beat two and beat three, and it changes every time we move, every time we breathe, every time we effectively increase in any way the vascular resistance of the lungs, it puts pressure back on the heart. And so that is changing dynamically all the time, our heart, our, our beat to beat variability. And the reason why that's an important number, and it was discovered through biofeedback uh, and, the, and the studies of biofeedback over the last 50, 60 years, that this is important um, because what we've seen in biofeedback is, and biofeedback is, this, is a technique that is where you hook somebody up to an EKG heart rate monitor and a respiratory monitor. And you, at, at the most basic level, you show them the rhythms of their heart and their lungs breathing on the screen. And you say, and breathe basically to match the rhythms and they match and they breathe to match the rhythms. And within 90 seconds, 95% of people sync their rhythms. And when they sync their rhythms, they feel better. They, and their heart rate. And, and when they feel better, their heart rate and their breathing is somewhere between generally five and seven breaths per minute. And that is a state that we start to enter when we enter, that the body enters to facilitate access to meditative states, which is also happens to be a high HRV state. That state of high heart rate variability, HRV, is important because that correlates with maximal adaptability or resilience or recovery. So doing activities that result in recovery that don't stress the body, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, deep breathing, um, soothing deep, deep breathing, soothing music, massage, te technologies like Apollo, um, you know, and doing things that make us make ourselves feel good, getting lots of sleep as a priority, right? All of these things boost heart rate variability. And heart rate variability goes up as a, me as a measure of our body being more recovered. Got it. You mentioned getting more sleep. Is it more sleep or better quality of sleep? And are genetics do genetics pay well? And I'll, I'll ask this question this way. So our uh, former president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, used to pride himself on sleeping four hours a night. Uh, maybe that works for him if he's in deep sleep, but, you know, four hours is very is a very low amount. I measure, I, I'm, I'm very conscious of my sleep. So on the average, I get somewhere around six and people are like, oh man, you need eight hours a night. I said, well, when I measure my sleep, I'm not measuring just the length of sleep, how long I sleep, but what is the what am I getting? Like HRV, all the things that you, uh, all the things that you mentioned, and and there are genetic predispositions and quality of sleep. Like uh, I have a predisposition for bruxism, 
uh, grinding my teeth. And when I am stressed, whatever I do during the day, it comes out at, at night during my sleep. And, and you know, Apollo has been extremely helpful. And I'll get into that too, how I'm using it. And you can t- coach me a little bit on what, what I'm doing right or wrong. But is it is it the quality of sleep or is it length of sleep? Because there's so many different, uh, like Michael Michael Bruce is on uh, on your board, who's who I know really well too, and I I've had this discussion with him many times. You know, uh, sleep uh, specialist and sleep doctor and all that stuff, and he's like, look at your states of sleep, look at you know your alpha and your theta and your delta and all those things, and dive deep. But is there a shortcut? Like, how how do people know what they should actually do? Is it more of a personalized thing? Uh, it's definitely more personal um, on that spectrum. I think that to answer your first question, it's definitely about quality. Michael and I would definitely agree on that, that quality over quantity is absolutely the most important. Um, I slept for, you know, six hours or less for se- for probably several years, but um, I taught myself through practices, breathing practices primarily to drop in to sleep very quickly. And I uh, I think the hospital training helped with that too, to get sleep whenever I could. And so I was able to learn and train my body to get, you know, what I felt, you know, basically I felt the way, the way I knew and the way I knew that I was getting what I wanted to get out of that. And that I wasn't like killing myself um, and feeling like crap every day is that I wasn't feeling like crap every day. I was feeling rested. Right. So I think if you, if it's really comes back to self-aware self-awareness and, mm-hmm. and training our breath, even just taking a a few moments every day to start just to think about the feeling of the air coming into our lungs as we intentionally take a breath and then out and then a couple more times, even if we just do it a minute a day, that is training our self-awareness to be aware of how good or how not good we feel, which is measured by HRV. You don't need HRV to tell you how good or not good you feel, right? You don't need your HRV to tell you how rested or unrested you you were, and you don't need an aura ring to tell you how much sleep you got or not, right? Those things can be helpful to map trends over time. I use, I have an aura ring. We, yeah. I use it to map trends months to months, you know, which really gets into the consumer conversation around HRV, which is that HRV is really fascinating metric, but all the things that we're talking about apply to HRV measured in the lab, right? That's cl- controlled clinical research. When you go out into the real world using aura rings, Apple watches, uh, you know, whoop and other things, there's a certain level of, of quality of data that the Oura right. Ring and Apple Watch hit that's pretty good. And then everything else is, is below that for the most part, um, in terms of the watch like wearables or ring watch and rings. But when you get to even the best, which are Apple Watch and Oura Ring amongst the best, you still have to trend your data over time. And right. time means looking at your trends of data, meaning looking at your sleep data, looking at your heart rate, and your and your HRV, resting heart rate and HRV, which are the three most important data points for any of us, and trending those over the course of weeks to months. And as you trend those over weeks to months, you'll start to see trends either up or down. And as you start to see those trends go up or down, you want to make sure that you trend in the right direction. But looking at it with higher resolution than that is prone to error because the devices have a lot of variability, which most people don't realize. So how does working with your wife affect chronic stress? <laughs> I mean, I think it actually reduces it to a large extent because number one, we tend to not step on each other's toes because we have different activities. Um, 
and we like each other. So we enjoy spending time together. And if we were further apart all the time, we wouldn't get that much time together. Um, so overall it's for us, it's, you know, we're best friends. It's been really fun to work together and to do this project together and to help so many people feel better and feel more in control of, of their lives. I was asking more in jest, and that's a great answer, but, uh, uh, no, no, it does, it's not without, it's not without challenges, right? Because <laughs> we never stop working. Right. Right. So the thing is, you know, if you, if you have a job or even if you're in a startup and you go home to someone or, or, or you go home to a place or an environment that does not have anything to do with work, you're going to have a little bit more balance than we have. And so for us, I think the biggest challenge is like, is, is just forcing ourselves to maintain balance and to keep each other accountable and keep each other in check, because then that makes sure that we're both happy and healthy and, and sustaining our own recovery right. um, in a positive way. So, so explain to me like how this came about with the, with your wife and how you started thinking about Apollo uh, in the, in the first place, because all the things that you've done before led you to that. And then it's a device. So how did that even come about? So I was working at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Psychiatry. I was seeing a lot of patients with PTSD and um, addiction and depression, but mostly PTSD, a lot of whom were veterans. And these people were on sometimes 5, 10, 15 medications, and they were not doing well. And we ended up having to take many of them off their medications and to do you know intensive psychotherapy work. And many of them started to do better. And, uh, and we started, and so it, it, and it was curious to me seeing these folks because as I started to see how poorly some of our treatments were working for some of them, other people were having, were, were benefiting, but there were large groups, sometimes in some cases with PTSD, it was over 50% of our patients were not doing well with the medications as prescribed and the psychotherapy as prescribed. And so we, you know, it just got me thinking. And I was doing research in the lab at the time on um, the safety and fear response in the brain and looking at chronic stress and how chronic stress impacts our fear center and our safety center and, and our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, and, and looking at all the different starting and all the different techniques that like breathing and yoga and, and um, basically looking at the chronic stress. I went from looking at chronic stress on the cellular level as we age, looking at chronic stress on the whole body. Um, when I was started at the University of Pittsburgh. So that that was a big shift. And seeing these patients, especially the veterans who had these incredible skill sets from train basic, you know, from training and being in the military for so many years, come back to the uh, civilian life and struggle so much mm-hmm. was really heartbreaking. And it was really challenging, but also inspiring because it was it was a it was a challenge of how do I figure out how to help these people who have so many skills, but have forgotten how to use most of them to remember that they have them and feel empowered enough and trust themselves enough to use them. Right. Which is a different, it's very different approach than we take to the average non-veteran patient who doesn't have those skills because, Mm -hmm. because they have never necessarily learned how to do the kinds of things that we're talking about. And yet these people are so traumatized, they never, they were never not afraid, right? In the whole time, sometimes years that I would see these patients, I would never see them not afraid. Shoulders up, sweaty palms, you know, just crunched, right? Fearful body posture, all of these things. 
So that led me to look at all the research around uh, and start reading on autonomic nervous system dysfunction and PTSD and trying to understand what's going on in the body, what's going on in the nervous system, in our stress response, what's going on in our safety response, our recovery nervous system, and our vagal system when we are under threat, when we're experiencing PTSD, can we measure it with HRV, right? Maybe there's a measure here that's interesting that we can track over time. HRV started to surface in the in the literature. And so then we started to see say, well, what boosts HRV? Now, what do we know boosts HRV? Meditation, mindfulness, deep breathing, yoga, soothing touch, soothing music, empathy, right? Em- empathic communication, um, calming things generally that stimulate the safety system of the body, activate and allocate resources to the parasympathetic system, which allows for recovery to actually happen, right? Mm-hmm. So seeing that pattern start to unfold, it became very clear that there may be an opportunity to use technology that we have available today to deliver some of the benefits of soothing touch, which is the oldest form of, of, of felt safety in mammals. Mm-hmm. It's hundreds of millions of years old. So the most ancient mammals have communicated safety to one another through, through infant mother bonding, right? Mm-hmm. And holding each other. This has passed down to us. It's hardwired into us. So we asked the question, what if we could give people a wearable or some technology they could take home that would be easy to use that would give them the sense of safety they get when they are having a one-on-one meeting with me and we're hanging out in the office and they feel comfortable to say anything that's on their mind without judgment, right? How do we, can we give them that feeling in a wearable, right? And then when we, because that feeling is therapeutic, that feeling is healing for people. It gives them the opportunity to feel safe being vulnerable. How do we help people feel safe being vulnerable? Vulnerability is that untapped wellspring of healing, so then we can, if we can feel safe with it, we can work with it and we can actually make much more of it and learn a lot from ourselves with it. So that was the challenge. And as we started to play around with that, we realized we could actually do that. And then we ran the trials and we actually did it. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And I, I, for me, I love the ability to modify the intensity uh, because sometimes it's too much. Like I'm I'm focusing on the stimulation, and, and for people that don't know, we can describe it. You can describe how it works, but for for me, there's a vibration. Basically, there's a certain vibration, a certain pattern of vibration that you can turn on based on what you want to do uh, for sleep. Maybe something calming, and you have different uh, variables to that. But for me, it's it's as you said, it's a personal experience. Sometimes. I do want the extra vibration stimulation because I have other things going on and I need to focus. Sometimes it's the opposite. Now I'm too focused on the vibration and it's actually distracting me from, you know, my meditation or, or just my normal uh, breathing. So that those variables, I think, are, are really fascinating the way you, you included that in the design. Uh, well, you use it exactly as it was meant to be used. Oh, so okay. Well, there you go. I didn't read the instructions. I'm the worst at doing that stuff. I, I That's was exactly what the intensity is for. Perfect. Perfect. So, okay. Got it. Um, in your research, I'm just curious. You talked about HRV and you, and you see patterns of people doing better. Did you measure or is there a measure of uh, neurochemistry? Like we know that there's cortisol release when we're stressed and like maybe there's anandamide levels that are released based on 
you know, are getting some euphoric feeling, not just for consuming, you know, phytocannabinoids, but I mean, our own endogenous endocannabinoids, uh, endorphins, things of that nature. Are, are there, have you measured or is there a plan to measure or is there something that we, you know, we can look forward to in the future that we can say, yes, patient reported outcome. Yes, we have a biomarker, but maybe there's something on a neurochemical uh, front that we can actually start measuring for consistency. Yeah, there are lots of things you can measure. We have not completed any trials that have looked at cortisol or other neurochemicals yet because they're very expensive and they take a really long time to run. Um, But we do have a big study that's going on at the Denver VA currently that is a VA-funded study of Apollo in veterans with PTSD looking at blood biomarkers and epigenetic biomarkers. So Amazing. that is and including cortisol and many, many other inflammatory biomarkers. So that will be very, very exciting to see that come back. Um, but that being said, while that's fascinating on a mechanistic level to understand what's happening on the neurochemical level, you can actually predict very, very clearly in most cases, what's happening on the neurochemical level, because we know what happens when you take a deep breath and we know what happens when somebody holds your hand, right? So by thinking, and we know what happens when you enter a meditative state, we know what brain the brain does and we know what the heart and lungs do. And if we know what the heart and lungs are doing, then we can use that to very quickly extrapolate, okay, well, we know that when the heart typically slows down and the breathing gets deeper and longer, almost invariably in states of, of general safety situations when that's happening, the inflammatory markers go down almost 100% of the time. So, you know, is it, is it interesting to spend a couple hundred grand to look at those? Absolutely. We're doing it. Oh, you you think you're going to get away with with a couple hundred grand to do that? The start as a start, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It's going to be a million. And the reason why I ask is because uh, we have a DNA company and we work with a lot of veterans and we do genetic predispositions. And now we're looking at epigenetic uh, and biomarker and all that stuff. And we work with veterans and we can, we can see all the things you said and people are asked is the same thing. Well, how do you know on a cellular level? So now we're tying in some methyl groups and uh, from your epigenetic expression, to, uh, mapping them to you know people who are predisposed to stress reactivity and uh, PTSD, and there's there's uh, genes associated with that. So now we're given uh, suggesting an intervention and seeing what the outcome is. So there's a couple of different interventions, and I'm, uh, and I'm sort of going in this direction for a reason. Uh, we started focusing on the endocannabinoid system originally. And uh, we can see that some people do really well with certain types of cannabinoids and terpene profiles and actually reduces stress and, and increases heart rate variability. Some people, it's the complete opposite. The narrow window of uh, delta-9 THC, the, you know, the binding affinity, and then you have these free radicals in your body. Even sometimes you have vagus nerve stimulation that, that uh, stimulates other factors. So and then the other thing that we started seeing is with some of our veterans, they started looking at uh, psychedelics like uh, psilocybin, mushrooms. And uh, I know that you've uh, been involved with, uh, with maps in, in certain ways as well. So I'm, I'm curious about this, this correlation between uh, psychedelics and, uh, and assisted therapy with psychedelics and what, what is happening and how that correlate with Apollo and there is a way to measure uh, some studies that maybe MAPS is doing with uh, even MDMA 
or, or ketamine or, or things that are going to be illegal. I know, psych, I know that psilocybin is still sort of on this, on this cusp of legal in, uh, in a couple of states or, you know, uh, tolerated. But I wanted to understand if, if you have any uh, thoughts or, or plans to start correlating some of these other uh, psychedelic. Uh, and I, I include, by the way, I include cannabis as a psychedelic too. Uh, some people don't, but I, but I, I do. So I put it in that. Yeah, I think cannabis falls into the psychedelic category in general. It is mind revealing to people. It does alter consciousness. So I think that's fair. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you you actually um, brought up something that is one of my favorite things to talk about, uh, which is, you know, because I am a mechanism guy. I like to figure out how things work. So a big part of 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 building Apollo was also understanding how therapy works, right? Why is therapy effective? And when you really look at why therapy is effective, therapy is effective. Psychotherapy, uh, therapy that involves a doctor or a clinician and a patient, therapy is effective because the clinician and the patient have a relationship, right? There is a trusting bond, what we call the clinician-patient alliance, where the patient feels that they can trust that the therapist, clinician is on their team. And that they're not judging them and that they can say whatever they want in the safe space that is the therapeutic milieu, the environment, right? So that, when you look at all therapeutic modalities across the board, even in physical medicine, this is critical to people achieving good outcomes, particularly in mental health. So this really, and, and when you looked at our, pe- our people with PTSD, our veterans with PTSD and other non-veterans with PTSD, it was very, very clear that their body was saying, my, our fear response is out of whack. Our fear response is totally out of control. We need counterbalance. We need safety. We need to restore the, the balance and the force, right? That's what their bodies were saying from the data. So we said, okay, well, what if we look at safety? And when we look at what psychedelics do, because at, around this time, I was also getting my MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training and my ketamine psychotherapy training. Um, and it was you know, we were talking about, uh, with my colleague, Ben Kelmendi, actually, who I'm chatting with later today about how we need to figure out better ways to assess what is happening to people when they're experiencing a, on the, on the, on the mechanistic level, on the, on the neuronal level, on the tracking level that helps us understand biomarkers, right. That helps us understand what's changing in the body when people go through these transformative experiences. When, when we have a patient or 67% of a cohort of patients that go through three doses of MDMA and 42 hours of psychotherapy over 12 weeks. And 67% of those people are no longer experiencing PTSD symptoms criteria after one year out with no additional treatment. We need to know, and those patients deserve to know what the heck is going on in their bodies when that transformation occurs. That is a wild transformation. These people had 17 years, over 17 years on average treatment resistant PTSD, nothing worked. And then they have these results, right? They had lost complete hope that there was anything that was going to, at this point for most of them, that was going to do anything to change their lives. And it did, right? So, so there's, and the reason it did, just to conclude on that, yeah. on this point is because the medicine is neurochemical, is neurochemically, biochemically amplifying the sense of safety that the therapist clinician and this trusting bond between the therapist and the clinician that has been built in advance of the medicine experience. That, that is the best way I've ever heard anybody explain that. So I'm, I'm going to ask a very 
long-winded question because I I'm I have AD ADHD or whatever and and I have this bits and pieces but I'm going to try to ask it this way. So do you mind do you mind if I add one thing before you ask it? Oh yeah yeah I'm sorry go ahead please. No, no worries. The last thing I just want to add is Apollo was developed as a wearable safety device in the way that it delivers vibrations that make the body feel safe, like soothing touch. And so it too was built to replicate some of the effects that we saw the MDMA was amplifying molecularly, but through the sense of touch. So that's how Apollo tunes in. And we're measuring both of those epigenetic outcomes in studies currently. I, it's amazing. To it it to, totally makes sense. And I, I, I like the safety aspect. So I'm going to try to ask the question this way. Uh, so I was, we work with athletes, for instance, and athletes are very similar to, uh, to veterans. I had this one athlete who's uh, a lineman, 300 pounds, six foot six, and saying, when there's 300 pound guys running at him, sense of calm, no stress. I know what I'm doing. When he's at home, uh, you know, the birds are chirping, the windows, stress, he's stressed. And it's like, it's an interesting, you would think, wait, you're in a calm environment. What's happening? Because you're so conditioned to be able to, you know, experience that because it's second nature to you. And uh, one of the things, like I took a class with Stephen Kotler, flow class, and he was talking about, you know, when you're a flow, what is that flow? What are your flow triggers? So understanding what specifically works for you, maybe for this athlete, he was in flow while he was playing, so he he wasn't really thinking. Now, uh, listening to guys like Andrew Huberman, doc, Dr. Huberman, he talks about you know cold and hot. So th- this is why I'm asking this question in a long-winded way. Uh, even personal self-talk. Like uh, I was a big uh, you know, proponent of Tony Robbins. I go to all this, uh, all his uh, different events and it's about having a self-talk. But one of the things I always thought about with psychedelics and, and, and therapies, it's not about turning things on, it's about turning things off. So I don't know if you can kind of substantiate my theory on this, that one of the things that happens is when you're consuming these, uh, you know, it's these different substances, it's really allowing you to turn off all this different stimuli that's going on and you can kind of maybe be in flow, if I can use that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that theory. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the gist of it. In some ways, it's also turning some things on and turning other things off at the same time right? So it's turning on our awareness. It expands our awareness, but it turns off and or turns down our sense of ego self, right? That defensive, I need to protect myself voice in our heads that's always going off or going off a lot of the time. It turns down that in the right environment. It has to have the right environment. The environment prepares the body to feel comfortable to allow that to come down. And if the environment is not safe, that's when people can have unpleasant psychedelic experiences or altered state experiences. So the safety of the environment, therapeutic milieu, and the cultivation of that, even just being around people that you trust, who you know are going to take care of you no matter what, that is can be enough in many cases to just make sure that you're going to have a good time and that would and that whatever comes up could actually be very uh, transformative for you. Yeah, that's why they say set and setting are a key to a psychedelic experience. Uh, makes makes total sense. What are your thoughts on cannabis as a therapeutic agent? 
I think cannabis can be really helpful. It just depends on what you use it for. You know, I think there's a lot of patients with PTSD that use it that that tend to get really good results. And that's even high THC containing cannabis. There's a lot of people who use it for pain. I think the if you look at the data, and again, just with my scientist, doctor, researcher hat on, you look at the data. You just want to look at the data and we want to see what does the data say? The data says that cannabis reduces opioid burden and it reduces benzodiazepine burden. And that's psychoactive cannabis and non-psychoactive cannabis alike. That's CBD containing dominant, CBD dominant cannabis and THC dominant cannabis. I think that is a huge win in that we don't have any other really, really strong non-opioid tools that help to reduce the burden of opioids. I think within the one year, 2018, that dispensaries were introduced in a number of states, we saw a decrease in four to five million daily doses prescribed um, in that one year of opiates, right? So you think about the impact of that on society by even just unregulated, totally unguided use, it's pretty phenomenal. Imagine if we could introduce a little guidance to people and say, hey, maybe you'd be somebody who would benefit from CBD dominant versus THC. Maybe you need low THC, you need high CBG, high CBN, high CBC, right? There are hundreds of cannabinoids that we haven't yet explored even that are just truly therapeutic. And, and we don't even have the option, the opportunity to investigate them right now because the clinical trials infrastructure is not supportive of that. Um, but it's happening regardless in the real world. And I think there's a huge opportunity for cannabis to emerge as a powerful ally in this, in this public health uh, situation we're in right well, now. Well, thank you for saying that because you sort of indirectly promoted what we do at, at Endocana Health and their DNA, our DNA test for, for doing that. And, that's, and our goal is to have, and you're absolutely right, clinical trials. I mean, we, we're in a, a few clinical trials, uh, one at Harvard, one in, in Montreal, and et cetera, but it's the observational research. It's looking at what people are reporting and, and gathering that data and using machine learning to make better predictive inferences. And it's, it's about... Like when we met with the FDA, for instance, they asked the purpose of our test, and we said to help people uh, mitigate or avoid an, a possible adverse event. And most adverse events with cannabis are just people are taking too much and uh, or poor metabolizer, different method of consumption. So, you know, having a path for people to feel, I mean, you keep saying this, and, I, and I'm, I'm now going to start adopting this too, safe. Safety is key for everything. And I think that that's one of the major issues. And I remember even myself having, uh, and I don't call bad trips, an intense uh, psychedelic experience. It had to do with the setting that I was in, that I didn't have nature around me. And I didn't feel that level of safety. So it had a a completely different experience. Uh, Still a learning experience where I took something away from that. But you're you're absolutely right. I I really... uh, Agree with you. Okay, so I have a few questions I ask all my guests, and uh, uh, real, real simple uh, questions. I'm, I'm debating whether to ask you this question or not. I'm going to ask it anyway uh, because it's not really the, the topic of conversation. But I'll ask it, and you, you choose whether you want to answer or not. Uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. I probably shouldn't answer that question. Okay, let's move on. I, uh, I, I apologize. I can explain after. No, no, that that's fine. That's why I was uh, that's why I was hesitating to ask anyway. But you know, it's out, so it, it's fine. Um, so I'm a music guy. Eh, obviously, if people can see, is there? A, do you uh, remember what the very first concert that you attended was? 
That's a really great question. It's actually a funny question because the first concert I attended was with my parents. I was probably eight or nine or eight or nine years old. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. Really? Yeah. At the, at the Marin civic center, um, which was just absolutely awesome. I was doing a lot of folk music growing up, folk and classical and a little jazz and show tunes. (laughs) Uh, What was the last concert you attended? The last concert, it's actually been a while for for any big, big concerts just because of COVID and work being crazy. But I did have the pleasure of going to see um, one of Jerry Garcia's old bands just a few days ago in Mill Valley at Sweetwater, um, which was unbelievable uh, music. It was just the quality of like blues, jammy, funky blues, you know, it was really outstanding. And you know, to, to just hear people who have just been doing this for so many years. It was so fun and um, got got some good dancing in, which I really needed because haven't been been chair bound a lot lately. There you go, man. That's that's uh, you got to get out of your head and get out. Of that. That's that's a really great thing to advise people to just get out there. And, and music, music is like my therapy. I have to have music all the time. I, uh, in that two years of being cooped up, I said, I'm going to say yes to everything so i go to all kinds of crazy shows uh is music there anything is, that, music is everything music well is, i was gonna ask all you, about any- even with apollo apollo is music in a wearable yep Just absolutely music. yeah it's great I, I i love that that choice um is there anything that you're listening to these days that uh, uh is interesting that you want to maybe uh recommend that's a good question um I've been listening to one of my good friends put out an album, uh, Nick Chattel, not an airplane. Um, it's called Galore Galore. It's an absolutely stunning album. Um, singer songwriter, folk music. Um, really, uh, really love that. I've listened to that a lot as well. Um, and a lot of jazz, a lot of funk, Sonny Rollins been going back to the classics, you know, like Sonny Rollins, uh, Mingus and you know and uh um Miles Davis and you know Thelonious Monk and a lot of the a lot of those guys have been coming across and then bridging into more of the the female vocalists and getting into um uh I'm forgetting the name of the artist but like walk you know um walk on by um and uh you know, getting, getting more and in, back into some, you know, we've been listening, we, we went through a phase of last year, we're listening to a lot of like funky house music and disco house music. Yeah. And so a lot of those songs now we're like going back to the originals and we're listening to all the originals. Yeah. Because they used the samples of those. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And reha- rehashing our connection to those. Which is- have, have you listened to Kamasi Washington at all? No. The jazz guy. Yeah. I highly recommend. I just saw Kamasi. Oh, uh, if uh, sax player, I mean, phenomenal. I I don't want to call anybody the second coming of Train or anything of like that, but this guy, out of all the players, uh, and uh, and Christian McBride on bass, uh, saw him not that long ago. Uh, fantastic player, so Kamaji Washington. All right, so final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, that's funny. Uh, what did my room look like growing up? Um... A lot of Ninja Turtles, a lot of Ninja Turtles everywhere. Ninja Turtle bedspread, Ninja Turtle stuffed animals. Um, I really wanted the the uh, 
Leonardo or Donatello stuffed animals, but they were out of stock when my parents got me them for my birthday or went for my birthday. So I ended up getting the Raphael stuffed animal, which actually was the best one. It turns out in retrospect, because it was the biggest. Um, and, and, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was funny. So I had lots of Ninja Turtles stuff. It's funny the things you remember, right? Right. Um, and then, yeah, it was just like my bed in the corner and hamper dresser. I had a built-in bookshelf that had a bunch of books. My, you know, my parents filled my bookshelf with books that were like, some were children's books and some were books that were overflow from my dad's bookshelf. So I had lots of really weird stuff in there that was like electrical uh, theory or thermodynamics or like how to evaluate the curvature of the lens of an eye or, you know, weird stuff like that, chemistry books and things. So I just started to like read through random things, just look at pictures and, um, I'm sure that helped. I listened to a ton of music growing up. Um, had, I always had a, a cassette player by my bed and I would, um, listen to either Vivaldi or Vivaldi Four Seasons or for, for several, for probably like three or four years, Vivaldi Four Seasons, Peter, Paul and Mary or, uh, what was the other one? Oh, the magic flute by Mozart. Um, every, every night before I went to bed, I would usually listen to one of those three. And then, Everything changed when I found my dad's Devo mixtape. <laughs> and I threw that into my cassette player. I didn't really have my own like radio at that point. So I, like, I wasn't listening to like what was on the radio. I threw that in my cassette player and I was like, holy shit, what is this awesome music? <laughs> That's it. And then you shifted it. <laughs> that was it. And you're like, the clash and the moans and all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. It went all and the way. It <laughs> definitely changes you. Uh, Dave, I want to thank you so much for being on. Uh, where can people dive more into your work? Where can they get an Apollo? Uh, where can they uh, engage with you? Uh, you're, I know you're everywhere because I, all I have to do is put your name and you're all over the place, but share with the people, please. Sure. Um, you can come find me at socials. I always love to hear from you. I'm at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm on Clubhouse at Dr. Dave Rabin, and uh, we have a weekly or almost weekly Clubhouse recording of uh, that you can participate in of the Psychedelic News, um, which is called the Psychedelic Report. It's the first uh, Psychedelic News show, which is also a podcast coming out, um, and you can catch us there and uh, even just come in and say hi. We always like to hear from you, so please reach out, and if you want to learn more about Apollo, you can check it out at apolloneuro.com that's a-p-o-l-l-o-n-e-u-r-o.com or easier than that is even wearablehugs.com it'll take you to the same place um and you can check me out at my website uh drdave.io great thank you so much again for being on really appreciate it yeah it's my pleasure thanks so much for having me Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.